Courage to Hope with Tony LaGreca is a show supporting the fight for sobriety against substance abuse and changing the stigma that comes along with it. Tony has been helping families, friends, and loved ones discover recovery services as well as coping skills for over six years following the death of his own son to opioids. Join Tony and his guests each week as they reveal the courage to hope. Here's your host, Tony LaGreca. Thank you, Ben, for the introduction. And this is Tony LaGreca, and this is The Courage to Hope. And tonight, our special guest is Laura Rosenthal. And uh, Laura has quite the story to tell. I should almost say stories. I met with Laura just recently at an event in Poe, and quickly I, I knew she was somebody that we needed to bring on. Definitely has a lot of courage and has definitely picked up a lot of hope along the way. So welcome, Laura. Thank you so much, Tony. Happy to be here with you tonight. Okay, we're happy to have you here. So let's start off with the, probably the most compelling thing right out of the gate is that your father was in a concentration camp at age 14 and survived to age 17 and was, um, was able to get released by the time he was 17 years of age. So could you like to tell us that story of how he survived and other things that happened, the stories that he told you well uh, later on in life that he, that you learned? Absolutely. Um, Dad was from a blended family in terms of his mother, Julia, and his father, Joseph. And he is, he has half brothers. He had a half sister. Um, and a full younger brother. And he grew up in Ludge, Poland, and his father was and owned a textile company. And they were a family of means. Um, he mentioned about taking a limousine to kindergarten um, and that his older brother was you know, brilliant, and that was a half-brother. So, um, and he had one sister and grew up in a family. His father was an atheist. So religion was not a big thing in their home. Uh, he was drawn to it later in life. And I'm, I mean, traditional Judaism. Um, and we grew up going to Hebrew school. My dad was then bar mitzvahed at the age of, 65 because he was in a camp at the age of 13. Um, and so these are the things that just were normal for our family um, in terms of his courage, his resilience, his need and love of family. Um, I'm one of three girls. I'm in the middle. Uh, Jody is named for Joseph, and Jill, my younger sister, is named for Julia. And that in the Jewish religion, names you know not the same, and of those that have passed. Um, I'm from my mother's side, her grandmother Lena, and and we all. We all, I think, suffered in a way, and we talk about inherited trauma um, and the idea that we were born 
and as much as we were loved, you know, that he survived something horrific. And we then need to be the good children, you know, the good girls, um, and not to cause any more trauma for him. And that's a lot. That's a lot in itself. And my mom grew up um, with a Down syndrome brother. And in those times, you know, he was, it was, he was retarded. And so we grew up with knowing that that was um, an important part of our family. We learned empathy. We learned um, to be philanthropic. We learned, again, that all people are accepted. And we learned, we learned a lot, but there is also certainly a lot as a child that we had to, um, let's see, digest perhaps, process. I, I understand. Um, so I have a question like, how did your, your, your father survive in the camp for the four years? What did he do that made him important well, enough for the, for the Nazis to keep him alive? Well, he was able to do, I mean, he was young, he was strong, um, you know, for a while. And then of course, when you don't eat for days upon days and he, he was cunning. Uh, he had a cousin also in the camp who was a tailor and the cousin said to one of the guards or, oh, my cousin knows how to sew. He's wonderful. And he sued the, he did the eplets. I'm pointing to my shoulder and I realize your <laughs> listeners can't see me. Um, oh, yeah. But he then was able to survive. So he was able to join the seamstresses, if you will, um, he did the eplets on the uniforms. And I have held on to my first ballet costume um, when I was five. My dad sewed the, um, the ties on for me. And you know, when you say, do something as if it's gonna save your life or your life depends on it, this is living stitches of what was one of the ways that he saved his life because he became important to them. He did a good job. And that ballet costume um, is probably something that I look at on occasion. I look at the stitches and I know, and my dad is now you know, with me in a way, but that illustrates the need and the desire to live um, that he had and the strength to do whatever it took to then do what they wanted from him. Um, and, you know, he, he has a very great sense of humor, excuse me, he had a very good sense of humor. And I believe one day he was doing his work and he looked out the window and there was a beautiful girl and he, he said something and somebody said, what are you, you're going to get yourself killed. What are you, what are you doing? And, you know, he had this 
twinkle in his eye that I know was there. And I hope, and it never, it, that twinkle never died. Um, and that gives me, that's one of, you know, that gives me that he went through this and he was able to then go on. And certainly, you know, he was haunted by nightmares. Um, he woke up, you know, I learned later that he would wake up in the middle of the night. My mom would try to calm him, um, but he was haunted by so many things. And certainly in that era, um, you know, I was born in 1960. Um, men did not seek help or psychological. And so he carried a lot with him. And um, unfortunately, unfortunately, because again, I believe he was haunted um, and tried his best to, you know, shall I say, shake it off or, but it, it was, yeah. you know, in the, the fiber of him. And I could sense sadness. I was very in tune to, you know, moods and so on and so forth. I think um, that's just well, intuitive. You were telling us earlier about- I'm sorry. Um, his, you were telling us earlier about his younger brother and he encouraged him to go with his mother and- Well, and, uh, yes. Um, when he was fir first brought to the camps, um, you know, they, one side and the other, and they took his mother, Julia, to one side and his younger brother, Philip, um, who my son bears his, that name as his middle name. Um, he said to him, he said, oh, go with mom, go with mom, you'll be okay, you'll be okay. And then he turned, so they, they took her, her and him and he turned to somebody and he said, so they'll, they'll be okay. And somebody said to him, you idiot, they're taking them to be gassed. And yeah, that, that haunted him for a very long time. He blamed himself for um, basically having his mother and his brother annihilated. Um, his father had died previously in the Ludge ghetto um, from starvation from, so he never even made it to the, to the camps. And another brother, a half brother uh, went to Siberia. Another brother was in Russia at the time. So, and his sister, his sister is the one that gave them the warning. Um, she was, she was dating someone and she said, you know, things are going to be bad. Things are going to be bad. And so the gentleman, he risked his, you know, basically he risked his life by saying it, but my dad and his mother and his younger brother um, were, you know, didn't escape fast enough. And so they were on the trains, you know, and I know there are many documentaries, there are many educational uh, um, venues out there because we cannot let this time in our in history go by. And it really did happen, you know, no matter what others might think, it really did happen. So, 
and I know from firsthand experience that it did. And so we honor those that survived. And, you know, my dad was, we celebrated his 90th in 2017 and two weeks later, um, he did die. And we, you know, more and more, obviously our, the survivors are dying and so their story needs to be told. And I'm proud to say that he is in the archive, Steven Spielberg. Um, he did an interview. And so his story and through us and through our children, my children, my younger sister, son, we perpetuate or we carry the story with us and share it. And he did that a lot. He went to schools to speak. He did community events um, and any time he was happy to share and made a point of sharing because he did not want to be this period again to be forgotten. Um, how, when did he start <clears throat> ever telling you about what the camps were really like? Oh, how was, he old, was he older or were you, how, how old were you? He was not, oh, much older. Um, honestly, I didn't really know about, he kept, yeah, he kept that very, very secret. Um, I was well into my, well, my, my older sister, Jody, she did a paper, um, for college. So, um, clearly he shared the story. So if she was in college, and we're two and a half years. So 19, you know, if I was 17, 18, maybe. Um, but as kids know, that was never talked about, never talked about. And, but again, you know, we knew he was a Holocaust survivor. We knew what that meant. Um, and we knew that we, you know, it just wasn't, it wasn't discussed. Um, and I think he, he felt that he didn't want to share that trauma. He didn't want to put that on us to have to, but again, you can sense, you can sense sadness, you can sense, or even, you know, little things. If there was something, you know, on a piece of cheese, you know, a little, a little blue spot. And I was, ew, no, we're not eating that you know, he would say, he would remind us, you know, we can just cut it away. He had nothing to eat. So yes, we were reminded of the hardships, but not, not the big picture. Enough for us to understand, but um, not enough to scare us, if you will. Okay, so, <clears throat> so now um, moving along in your adulthood, mm -hmm. um, I know you're involved now with a special, I want to say suicide prevention organization. And uh, you want to build up. That's to, correct. Um, you want to bring, up, bring us up to sure. speed to how you got to that point and why you're in the group sure. and everything. Absolutely. Um, so if you need to take a breath any once in a while, that's okay. I understand it's a tough subject to talk that. about, but, but um, we need to get the word out that you know, suicide is a disease of the brain. 
and we have so much stigma out there. We have to, this is one of the reasons why I brought you on is to help us, you know, help you can, you're a survivor. <clears throat> so you can help us explain the stigma and all of the different things that you've witnessed or seen after that event and how you brought up, were brought up to that event. Absolutely. So again, sharing about my dad, um, there is, there is something thing that we call inherited trauma. And again, my mom had a brother that had Down syndrome. Um, my, and that, while that was, you know, part of our family, that in itself, I had to advocate for him. You know, he wanted to meet friends, he would come visit us. And my parents and my grandparents were very involved in creating at that time, what was called AHRC, uh, Association for the Help of Retarded Children. So we, you know, that was our, that was our growing up. And while it was important that we all, the three of us, as I said, um, we all witnessed that and learned from that, it certainly, in terms of balance of childhood and what our needs. So perhaps, you know, we weren't, we weren't broken um, or was, weren't visibly broken, if you will. Um, I started taking dance ballet at the age of five and that inherently is an art <laughs> that is a, and especially, you know, young girls, um, body image, um, the commitment to it, the, the amount of quiet, if you will, going from school where you didn't talk, then you go to ballet class, you don't talk. So there's a lot of silence. And then, you know, keeping things inside, perhaps, you, you know, you, you just can't talk out in the middle of a, it's very regimented in a ballet class. I studied with Andre Glefsky, um, one of the greats. And we, you know, I took class, came home, did my homework and went to sleep, went to school. So, um, and again, I'm the middle of three girls and the peacekeeper, the, you know, make sure everybody is okay and put myself maybe at a point where I didn't speak out. I didn't, and I learned, you know, I learned how to be um, self-sufficient very early. And my older sister, Jody, you know, she was there for me, but you know, she had her friends. So going to ballet class, um, trying to be a good student, trying to be social, um, I had a terrible overbite as a youngster, um, buck teeth. My dad called me Bucky Beaver, um, but with not, not with malice, but I shared that with a therapist and she said, oh my, Laura, um, you know, I thought it was endearing and he did too. Um, so, you know, just trying to fit in and then, of course, you know, my dad had still had an accent and um, 
and you know my uncle would visit and he with down syndrome so there was a lot of stuff to get through um and and i did and i did and carried on and tried to spin a lot of plates um i was married at 22 um i've been married november will be 40 years um my husband comes from we went to the same high school i had graduated early and lived in israel for six months came back and we met then went off to college um and his mom suffered from a brain tumor at the age of 27 so he himself um had inherited trauma and also maybe not a typical um, childhood. And we have two fabulous children. Um, and I was teaching ballet. I was in the fitness field. And again, perfection, um, which is a word now I try not to use because it is it weighs heavily on you, you know, being the perfect daughter, the perfect mother, the perfect sister, the perfect wife. Um, these are all things that I put upon myself. And um, again, not from a family that took a lot of medication, not from a family, you know, it was like, oh, you can get through this. And that, you know, dad was the facilitator of that, you know. I got through the Holocaust and in a way that he wanted to instill resilience and coping, it also stunted us that, all right, you know, I don't need to ask for help. I, I can do this my, on my own. Um, and so, you know, it's an, it's a, and for everybody, every family of course has their things and I don't want to, dismiss anybody else's and it's an unlearning so as you get older you have to peel away the layers you need to um and you need somebody to help you do that too but again not a big thing in my family and you know we're so we're so apt to say okay you know i have a cardiac issue i have you know back pain i have any kind of pain or any kind of ailment and medication is absolutely what you would do. But then when you talk about mental illness or um, mental unwellness, if you will, and it's like, oh, you know, you got to go on meds. Oh, no, no, I'll do anything else but do that. It's such a twisted and, uh, you know, we talk about mental health and physical health. Well, that's total health. And you cannot have one without the other. And we are slowly getting to that point. And of course, this is all something I've learned over the last five years, because in November of 2017, my dad was not doing well. And, you know, he was <laughs> approaching 90. And I was in Florida with him. We lived in Florida at the time. My parents lived there and I felt I was to be looking after him. And if anything happened or them, if anything happened, it, although my sisters were very helpful, 
um, again, it was something in my own head that I said, you know, I have to do a good job. I have to do, I have to be perfect at this. And things started to spiral and my anxiety about what was going on with my dad um, and I couldn't fix it. So this was, this was a problem. And one day I took him to the hospital for like the second or third time um, he was having pain and he was fine. I mean, he spoke seven languages. He, he would joke around with anybody um, from, you know, an orderly in a hospital to the doctors and he was well-read. Um, he only went to sixth, up to sixth grade, but you could talk about history. He could talk about um, not sports, definitely not a sports family, um, but he could, he could carry on a conversation and he was delightful to be around and he, he was fine. And they brought him up um, and the next morning, I came to visit him and he didn't know what a telephone was for. He thought he was going to change the TV channels and he started to tell me a joke and he kept repeating and repeating it because he loved to tell jokes. And I knew in my heart, I said, there is something absolutely wrong and I couldn't fix it. Uh, that night I went home and I was in such... I think the best way to explain it is when you tread water for a long time, you, you know, you get, exa you're exhausted. And I must've been treading water and creating that. Yeah, I'm fine. I used to use that all the time. Dad would ask me, how are you today, Laura? I'm fine. He said, you always say that, but he didn't go the next step and say, tell me how you really feel. Cause then I might have been able to say, I feel this, or I feel that, but Again, I didn't want to burden him because he had been through so much. So even as a young girl, young child, teenager, I didn't want to share any pain I was in because he had suffered enough pain. And I knew that. Um, and of course, that that was the playbook for the rest of my life. No, I'm fine. I'm fine. No matter how twisted my insides were. So at that point, I said, there is something terribly wrong. Um, and he had suffered a, a brain bleed in between the night and I couldn't help think it was my fault, which I, you know, if I didn't bring him to the hospital, would this have happened if he, if I had stayed, um, you know, if I had stayed in the apartment with them and just thoughts that when you are dealing with anxiety, they just are so hyper sensitive. And when you say them out loud and people look at you like, oh my gosh, you are nuts. Um, but that it's like a roaring, a roaring train in your head. And um, I got home that day, that night, and I was devastated that within 24 hours, not even, he had gone from a laughing, joking, the man I loved to somebody who, who had completely, completely changed. And that was devastating for me to see. 
And again, I felt it was on my watch um, as, the, as the daughter that was in, you know, living in the same state. And um, I needed to end the pain. I, I was at that, I had treaded and tried to keep it together and I needed to end the pain, which is something that a lot of people are not clear about when they talk about um, suicide. People think that people want to leave the earth. And while a lot of it is more about ending the pain. So I didn't wanna leave my family. I didn't wanna leave, physically leave my children. Um, and, you know, they had always seen me in the light of, you know, the mom who works, the mom who comes to school, you know, who bakes the cupcakes. And I had always volunteered when my kids were little as much as I could in regards to a work schedule and, and you know, library. I, I felt I shared a lot of time with my children and I had, I had hit the, or drowned, if you will. I had sunk from my treading. I was treading and I was exhausted. I was exhausted and felt like a failure. And um, I attempted to end that pain, must have passed out for a period of time. And I looked at the clock and I remember looking at the clock and thinking, okay, it's late enough, I can wake my husband up. So I, I did what I did and then I, I called to him and I said, I need help, I need help. Um, and then I was what they call Baker Act in Florida. Um, that is somebody who was a harm to themselves or other people. And I was brought to a psych ward um, and evaluated, um, you know, they take away your cell phone, they take away anything. And it was, it was like I was floating on top and watching this and saying, oh my gosh, what have I done? Um, of course, my children came, um, you know, the devastation, as I say, it's a ripple effect. Um, and then I slowly, I slowly, you know, swam to the surface, if you will. Um, I did an outpatient intensive program. Um, and to be able to say I know you know now what happens on the inside it is it's like a movie that go you know that kind of plays in front of me um, and so it took time it took a lot of work that at one point I didn't want to do I was just too still too exhausted I was there I was ashamed that is certainly, um, I didn't want to be seen by other people. Um, my daughter was extremely helpful. Um, I was incapacitated. I wasn't able to do anything for myself in terms of toileting and, and bathing and even brushing my hair. Um, and to have to be at that level of need 
for somebody who was very self-sufficient was extremely painful. And, and again, I was um, tormented by it that I had done this to everybody. So again, thinking of everybody else first, uh, which is something now I'm able to say, no, I can't do that, or it's not good for me. And the you know, listeners might understand that. And it's important now that I put myself first um, in many ways. And I still struggle with that. You know, I want to I want to do I want to help somebody else, but I then have to say, okay, my health, and that is either is the combination again of mental and physical health. And so um, I did a out of the darkness walk in Florida when I was be feeling better and maintained some friendships with people that I was in group with, um, helping each other. And that's AFSP, which is American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. So that is like the mothership. And then we have statewide, and then we have um, here in Massachusetts, when I moved from Florida to here, there are the regional coalitions, if you will. So I was able to join the Plymouth County Suicide Prevention Coalition. Um, at the time when we moved here, they were having a meeting right down, I could actually walk there and I wanted to become involved. I wanted to help people that had lost their voice for a little time or for those that have left us, uh, died by suicide and did not have a voice so that people could understand what, what it means to be depressed, to have anxiety, to be bipolar, all of these things that, oh no, don't talk about that. And there are certain cultures that still no, you know, that's voodoo. Don't talk about that. You're possessed by spirits. Um, and ending the stigma. And so if that's what I wanted to do, I needed to be able to find my voice and to be able to share it for pe with people and to sh share, yes, this is my story and everybody's is different, but the idea that I can so easily talk about you know, oh yeah, you know, I'm on blood pressure pills. I'm on, you know, all of those things that we certainly, as we get older, oh, you know, I went to this doctor and that doctor and so on and so forth. That's all we, we do say, when we get older know, is go to I doctors. Went to a therapist. Yeah, that's right. Um, Laura, I'd like to doctors. <clears throat> you've been going along pretty good here. I, but I, I'd like to go back a little bit and ask you a few questions. When you said you were sure. really, when you were really tired of it all and you were in your bedroom or um, did you take any pills or anything or did you just pass out onto your bed and just collapse? No, I, um, I injured myself. I, um, you don't have to get into details. You well, don't want to. no. Um, when I say incapacitated, I wasn't able to use 
my hands. I, um, I was punishing myself, I believe. And let's just say I needed to, they needed to find a place that had a psych ward and a hand surgeon who was on call. So okay. I bear the scars internally and externally. Um, however, again, I don't know, or perhaps I do know, I don't know if I'd be where I am today if, this, if I didn't go through that period of time, because through that and through therapy, and yes, I'm on medication, um, the, what I have become is a woman I'm very proud of. And if I can reach and help one person, then my job, and I do think of it as a calling, as a job, I do think of it as something that is part of my healing. So it, it's selfless to me and selfish. Um, and that's what I say about my work with the Red Cross as well. Um, I am somebody who is inherently somebody who wants to be a helper. And I think there was a period of time where I did not want to be, I did not want to have helping hands anymore. Um, and I just, I recall, I just needed to rest. I just needed, I needed to say, I can't do this anymore. And that was probably one of the hardest things for me to have to say. Um, when when you come across, I was going to say, when you come across people that you know are feeling like you were feeling that day, and that's part of what you're doing now is you, um, I watched you um, that on Sunday and there were several people who came up to your table to talk to you. And I'm not sure if they were talking to you about somebody else or about themselves. Um, and, you know, <clears throat> the subject we haven't talked about, you, you did danger to yourself. Um, mm -hmm. in, the, in our country that last year, I heard there was about 22,000 people who committed suicide with their own gun. And is there a point where you try to get the gun out of the house if there is a gun in the house? Or how do you, how yes. do you approach that one? Because I mean, that, yes. it's, at least with yours, you didn't, you didn't shoot well, yourself. You did other things, but so you had a chance to be rescued. And, uh, mm -hmm. but, but there are certain ways of doing things and there's no return, you know, and that that's the part of it that really worries me when a person gets to that emotional point. That's right. And that's, yeah. again, the, the indicator that they need, they are hoping to end the pain or hoping to end being a burden on somebody, on their family. They're hoping to, again, not leave their loved ones, but they're feeling that they're imposing more pain than they can handle. And Massachusetts, with their gun laws, um, gives us the status low on, we are a state that is low in comparison. I mean, one, one suicide 
is is more than we want. However, with conversations like we're having, with education, with the work that we do in schools, giving people a chance just to talk, to be able to be heard, can sometimes save a life. And you know, we we do programs, we do teaching. Um, there's a program called Talk Saves Lives. There's a program called Mental Health First Aid. And that's a lot of the work that we do. And when you talk about veterans, um, there is the theory that 22 veterans, and I was part of this 22 push-ups for 22 days um, honoring the 22 service people that died by suicide. We try not to use the word committed suicide. Um, the language is died by suicide, killed oneself, ended one's life because committed refers to a crime. And this is certainly not a crime. Um, it's a cry out for help. And so 22, you talk to any veteran now, and I certainly was able to do that at the car show. Um, and I know as a fact, you know, 22 a day, mm -mm, it's probably more like 44. It's probably double. Um, and like I said, one suicide is too much. And so this is what the 10 coalitions of Massachusetts, one of the only states to have border to border coverage um, or to have individual coalitions under the mass coalition, which is the mothership here in Massachusetts. So I am extremely proud to be the co-chair of the Plymouth County Suicide Prevention Coalition now. Um, the founding chair, Jenny Babcock, does amazing work with the community and with the two of us now being able to be wherever we need to be. Like on Sunday, I was able to be at that event. Um, last Saturday, Jenny was at an event. We work with NAMI. We work with, we are funded by the Department of Health um, and Department of Mental Health and trying to create safe spaces for people to talk. And again, just being able to say, I feel anxious, okay? Okay, and then people get scared by that. But if I said to you, I feel nauseous, nobody, nobody, oh, you know, what did you eat? And so it's, it's so important for me. And I, quite honestly, um, it happened today. Um, there was a series of events and I was in a state of unhealthy and I'm talking about my mental health this morning. And I was unable to go to where I needed to be. And it was important for me to say, yeah, I was not feeling well, although it was not. And of course, it does manifest itself a lot of times when, you know, kids, oh, I have a stomach ache. That's anxiety. They don't want to go to school. They're, they're scared. They're fearful. They're anxious. Um, so they do overlap. You know, I have a headache. Yeah, because... I'm thinking about, or I'm anxious about something else. So to be able to 
align with that, what I preach, you know, it's okay. Yeah, I'm not feeling well. And it doesn't matter if it's a stomach ache or um, I'm just feeling out of sorts or anxious. I think that's important for people to say, you know, we talk about mental health days. Um, we talk about self-care and that's a huge thing for a lot of people to not do. Again, put yourself at the bottom. Everybody else is taken care of. Okay, well, you need to do, you need to spend time for yourself, whether it's a walk, whether it's reading a book, listening to music. I mean, there are um, creating, you know, art. Um, I, I hunt heart rocks when I'm walking. That's part of what I do. I look for um, heart-shaped rocks and, and shells or sometimes leaves, sometimes trees. And I, I photograph them and that makes my heart smile. And then I have shared that and then people go away or they come upon one and they're like, they send it to me um, or they'll post it on Facebook. Oh. Laura, look what I found. And that is, um, I'm smiling now. Um, and I, I think that's a wonderful thing because that also is a good thing to focus when you're, when you're focused on something. Sometimes that helps that runaway, you know, anxiety train. Um, and so when I'm walking, you know, I try not to look down too much because I might fall, but um, actually I was taking a picture and fell over because um, <laughs> I didn't bend my knees. So it's a, um, you know, what I, if I knew now, what I, you know, if I knew then what I know now, of course, um, but that's, that's what life is about, learning and continuing to learn. And, you know, then we can talk about uh, neuroplasticity as we get older, learning something new. Um, helps us, helps our cells and longevity. And that's correct. I, I wanted to just find out how do we how do we get a little hold of this foundation, this group that you're with in Plymouth and other places around Boston, because I'm sure there are a lot of people listening to you now, and they want to know. Oh, wait a minute! You know, I, I've started. I feel this way. I'm always, you know, the one that's holding everything in and and somebody who feels danger to themselves or, or anything, or somebody who knows somebody who's like that and they want to reach out and help them. Um, is this place open 24 seven or how do they find people like throughout the day and, and, you know, and how does it work? Well, I'm, I'm happy to tell you that 988 has just become, um, and that is manned or womaned um, or personed by clinicians and trained people. So 988, you can call. It is um, new and we are extremely excited about it, if you will, uh, because you can talk to somebody and locally here, um, the Plymouth County Suicide Prevention Coalition, and that's our it's Plymouth County Prevents Suicide at gmail.com um, or Plymouth County SPC.org. And you can see what we do. We are having 
a general meeting tomorrow afternoon. We meet on Wednesday afternoons. Um, your listeners can reach out to me um, or if you're able to post my email, that's fine. Um, but anybody you know, is welcome to find out what we do, how we do it. And again, events, fundraising, um, membership, helping people with resources. We can help you find resources. We can connect you with people. We'd like to, we we'd like can, to put just, it up on our um, website. We'd like to put wonderful. it up on our website, you know, so that we can, they, you can connect. They can, they go to the wmexboston.com website and we, we do have our partners. So you would be one of our partners on our website. I think that would be a, a great idea. That would be yeah. absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Coordinate that with Ben um, and uh, let okay. him know, how to explain to him how, what phone numbers and everything that you want to have on there and the, web, and the website email address and so forth. Um, that would be really helpful. That would be fabulous. Yes. I'm, I'm sure right and now if, there's a few people with anxiety or anxious and, you know, we're here sitting here talking about it, but somebody's probably relating to themselves. And um, we, you never know when, when we're doing one of these shows. And, um, and you know, this is on um, radio, so it covers a lot of area, plus it's on streaming across the country. So um, we'd like to make sure anybody who can get help can get help. Absolutely. And we appreciate that. And as I said, um, AFSP and is across the nation. Um, so if there's a listener who's not in Massachusetts, um, there are, they're all community based and, um, you know, loss survivors, attempt survivors, people who know somebody and we can cert- you know, we're, like I said, in synagogues, churches, we do community groups, we do schools, we go in and we do our training so that you understand what are those signs um, and what you can do and what is most helpful because um, there, you know, there's a lot of good intention out there. And the most important part is letting somebody just speak. So we, we talk about, you know, two ears and one mouth. And it's true because I think a lot of us, you know, think we have that magic wand or want to be able to say, you know, oh, I can, you know, I can do this for you. I can help you. But it really is a very personal journey and a personal uh, way that people have to find it in their own pace. And as I say, what we say and how we say it is so important um, because you cannot take those words back. And I always make the reference to the, the movie or the show Doubt when the priest, somebody's confessing and he says to, okay, I want you to take a pillowcase and open it up and let all of the, you know, the feathers, not foam, but all the feathers come out. And then I want you to try to put them back into the pillow. And the woman says, well, I can't do that. 
And he said, exactly. And that's exactly what, just like words, you cannot take them back and put them back in the pillowcase. So, or, you know, toothpaste back in the tube, whatever um, analogy you want to think of, but it, it is so true. And, you know, we're so apt or so hopeful that, you know, our words will be helpful, but a lot of times silence is really the most helpful thing and just letting a person speak and letting them hear their thoughts and processing. Do you believe that that a lot of situation is um, people just don't, as you're saying, just don't listen. And, and the people that are uh, getting to that point of feeling like uh, it's it's too much or it's overwhelming in the pain. They just can't take it anymore. Do um, you feel that there's lack of human connection? Is that a part of it, you think? Or is it more well, internal and that's, yeah. Well, certainly, uh, you know, COVID illustrates the need. I mean, we are a civilization. We are human and and yes, human interaction, we know if somebody is, you know, locked away, um, so much could happen to them um, adversely. And so, yes, we are, we are a social being. And, but I think a lot of, a lot of people feel that the more they talk, and of course, you know, there's nervous energy in that as well. Um, the more they talk, the better that person will feel. And again, it's really the reverse, just letting somebody speak and process and believe they are being heard. Because every time somebody interrupts or says, you know, and those words, um, oh, don't be silly. Um, I remember that as a kid, don't be silly you know, and discounting those feelings and, you know, oh, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and, you know, get over it. Um, oh, it's not that bad. And again, you know, going back to my dad with good intentions, um, oh, it's not that bad. You know, I, I didn't eat for days and, and um, you know, I didn't have a shower or, or you know, any of the comforts. So, but that wasn't my fault, you know, and so it gets misconstrued and then you, okay, all right. Yeah. I, I have to be quiet. I, I, you know, I can't say anything bad because that person or in my case, you know, dad had it so bad. So it's, um, again, sometimes silence and just letting somebody know that you are hearing them and not looking at your phone or, you know, not looking at your watch, those are, you know, those are such um, indicators that you're not interested. And as subtle as you might think you are, you know, that flick of your wrist, if you're looking or, you know, a quick check of your phone, that completely can shut down somebody. And the idea is to, if you're going to be there for somebody, be there and be quiet. <laughs> Now that's that's the biggest thing, right? As you just said, be there. That's a it's an art that people today don't have very well. Everybody's addicted to their phones and 
they every you know every somebody sends them a text message and they got to stop immediately what they're doing and and respond you know and and that that is um, I don't know how that's all going to end I'm not sure what it's going to be down the road because um, it's certainly not going in the right direction and the biggest thing I've noticed is especially people in their 20s and 30s they don't even know how to communicate with people. In other words, if you're if you're in sales, they don't want to do any they don't want to do any talking. All they want to do is send text messages or emails, and think that they're going to be and they think they're communicating with someone. And little do they know that ninety nine percent of those emails are in the trash bucket. You know, they're they're just sending it off to no one. And um, when you go to call someplace, uh, I missed. I'm, I'm thinking it was the phone company I was calling. I had to go through multiple changes just to get through to ask one question, you know, because again, nobody wanted to answer the phone. It was all this automation. Oh, press five, press six, you know, we just keep going. And that's what our life has become, you know, and then uh, the only people who talk on the phone live in the Philippines. That's what happens out there. Right. You know, the, art, like, the art of conversation, the art of conversation. Um, it's gone has changed dramatically and unfortunately it um it's become antiquated in a sense and you know on the one hand technology and you know this fast forwarding in many you know in many instances yes automated that it does help but yeah we have that art of conversation has been lost and I don't think anything can replace that. And especially, again, when somebody needs to talk and, you know, how do you do that? <laughs> Some people just don't yeah, know how to do it anymore. Yeah, well, it's got to come to that point where the, in families, there just can't be any cell phones at the dinner table. That's, that's number one. And the parent has to take the lead. No, no cell phones at the dinner table. That's what I would... That's my 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 takeaway from that. You know, if you you got to be able to talk a little bit. You know, if you if you remember back and you watch the the Christmas story and and Ralphie's there with his brother and mother and father and the father's always got the newspaper in his face. That was the 1940s. Cell phone was that newspaper. You know, oh the Cubs are going to play today. You know that sort of thing. You know, so uh, anyway. So could you go back over the, the name of the groups one more time? Because we're just about out of time and I want to make sure everybody can write it down sure. and so forth. Sure. So we are the Plymouth County Suicide Prevention Coalition. And as I said, there is the Mass Coalition, M-A-A-S-F-P. Yeah, considering and that most of our people are listening in Suffolk County, uh, Norfolk County, uh, most of our, at this time of the night, our signal is strong in greater Boston. So if I'm in Boston now, who should I get a hold of? Okay. Right. So Norfolk County, we actually, the Plymouth County covers. So. Oh, good. Yep. Okay. So if you go to, I always get my letters confused. Ben can tell you this too. Um, so the 
MA Coalition for Suicide Prevention. If you go and look, you will be able to then pull up the Mass Coalition. And that, as I said, is the, what I call the mothership. And then we have you know, Greater Boston. Then we have um, the Cape and Islands. Then we have the Plymouth County. Uh, then we have Metro West. So if you just go to the Mass Coalition, you'd be able to see all the different or the sub coalitions in your area. But we're all, we all help. And so if you reach out to us and need further, we're happy to point you in the right direction um, of who to talk to or which coalition you would basically fall into um, based on where you live. So, okay. um, you know, all for one and one for all is what we, we are. Um, nobody is That's turned good. away. And if you live in greater Boston, but you want to sit in our meeting, that's fine. Because it's on Zoom, most of these meetings? Yes, they have been. And we are continuing um, and to do that. And that's, you know, tomorrow afternoon's meeting will be a Zoom. And which, you know, in one way it's good because if somebody can't travel, if it's, you know, later in the evening and they don't want to travel at night or whatever the reason um, or the cost of gas is... <laughs> That'll do a it. Zoom meeting, so we are able to reach people from all over. Okay. Well, we want to thank you, Laura, for sharing this your story, actually more like stories, for the past hour. And uh, we've been speaking with uh, Laura Rosenthal, uh, who, as you know, uh, is a survivor, and her father was a survivor of the concentration camps. And that is what you call courage to hope. And that's why we call our show Courage to Hope because Laura is one of those people that certainly has a lot of courage and definitely has the hope to go with it. So this is Tony LaGreca and until next time, uh, we thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. <laughs>